fear and desire. Your defence is terrified. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's January 2022 and you're probably all nervous about running out of lateral flow test kits and wondering why the Prime Minister of the UK is unable to determine whether he's attending a party or not. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Thanks for having me. Hope you all had a lovely Christmas and New Year. And uh, let's get into the first podcast of 2022. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com Double Real, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. Here's what's coming up in episode 21. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV debates and stick it around to something from a backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're discussing Park Chan-wook's multi-award-winning psychological thriller The Handmaiden. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 21, we're looking at Barry Levinson's The Captain and the Shark. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at Steve Martin's appalling big screen adaptation of Sergeant Bilko. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 21, we're doing the first annual Double Reel Awards, looking back at the best and the rest of 2021 and looking forward to the award season. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Tony, friend of the pod, indicated that The Raid is being rebooted for Netflix and Michael Bay is involved and says, I'm looking forward to the inevitable remake Hate Watch you'll be doing for that. Yes, indeed. On our hidden gem, Alex says, yes, people have forgotten how good this film is. Miguel, Jason and Dwayne agree. On our classic The Handmaiden, Empatia says, it's a masterpiece. It makes old boy look dumb and amateurish in comparison. Mia, Rana and Jesse were equally effusive. The only note of dissent was Zayin, who said, I got bored and turned this off after 15 minutes. Well, okay, I might have stuck around for the whole thing, but it's your choice. On our remake, Hate Watch Sergeant Bilko, Eric said, this was horrible. I'm such a big fan of Steve Martin's work up until his 90s decline. I winced through this film. Gary went a bit easier on it, saying, not one of Martin's best, but it had its moments, and there were some inside jokes that I enjoyed. I'd love to know which ones those were. I trailed some early Stanley Kubrick films for this episode, and Rob said, Kubrick's first two films were definitely low budget and rough compared to his later films, but the second, Killer's Kiss, is a big step up from his debut in terms of quality, scope, and vision. I also trailed a new film I watched, Licorice Pizza, and Liddy said, I'm so excited for this film, can't wait to see this. Tavia and Lauren agree. Eduardo says, from the trailer, it just looks like a cover version of Boogie Nights. Seems to be a lot of people just haven't, you know, haven't got around to seeing it yet. It is, it is only just out. Thanks always for your messages. They're much appreciated. Now on with the podcast.
Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories, that it will inspire you to watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see, and contribute to a richer and broader cinematic experience. Just one piece of self-promotion before we get into it. Um, you may be aware from listening to previous episodes, we do another podcast called The Adamsons Versus. We will be working soon on our next episode of that, The Adamsons Versus, The 11-Year-Old Superhero, which is coming soon. So, in terms of busy, exciting lives, I'm very grateful for you to be able to join us today, mate, because you are in the middle of uh, doing up your house and plastering and such like, which just goes to show how busy life can be when you're trying to fit in film watching yeah. as well. Um, but for news uh, of what's been going on, we do obviously record this a little bit ahead of time. So some of what we talk about may be, uh, you know, a couple of weeks old by the time you listen to it. And some of the big breaking stories might uh, might get missed by us. But it's a monthly podcast. You take what you get. Um, so w- what news caught your eye this month, mate? Well, obviously, the passing of Sydney Poitier was quite sad. Yeah, um, that was first off for me screen. as well. Um, 94 years old. Good innings. Um, yeah. Still quite sad. He was the first black man to win an Oscar, obviously, which is some achievement. Um, yeah, know, I, I was. The, yeah, I was the same as you. I was like, oh no, Sydney Poitier's dead, and even though he's like ninety four, and that's not the most unexpected news, it still came as a bit of a bit of a blow, didn't it? Um, it, it is. I mean, it's amazing to think because I remember someone else was talking about this and saying, you know, talk about a pioneer because there was literally no one that Sydney Poitier could really look up to and say. I'm going to be a leading, you know, a black leading man like this, or I'm going to be a slightly different black leading man to the black leading men that have come before me, because he was literally, you know, the first person doing this. I mean, anyone who came after him, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Denzel Washington or you know Richard Pryor, Will Smith, a pretty wide variety of people who've become, you know, Eddie Murphy, people who become film stars, they at least had people who'd gone before them to to kind of, you know, inspire them or or, or, or to to consider, and he was. You know, there's no greater definition of, of pioneer than that. Yeah, no, that was, that was probably the biggest news. Obviously, the, the Golden Globes happened. And, um, and, and no one and cared. And no, no one cared. Uh, they, they're just kind of dying. I think awards in general are kind of becoming less and less relevant. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, we'll just have to see what happens. I think that, you know, the purpose of awards this season is to kind of promote the, the industry and promoting the industry so that people go... Oh, that that sounds good. You know, I'll, I'll go and watch that. It, it is needed. Whether awards continue to be the way you do that, we'll just have to see, right? Yeah. Um, the other news I noticed: uh, Jodie Comer has had to pull out of making Kitbag, the Napoleon film that she was doing with Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, yeah, because I think she got COVID, and then that meant it conflicted with. It had this knock-on effect, didn't it? I mean, um, basically, if she if she if she'd come back to do Kitbag, she'd have had to have dropped out of like like two other things or something, and it's just one of those things. So she's been replaced by Vanessa Kirby, who's a very good actress. So that'll be um, yeah, pretty good to so. see as well. It's not quite Jodie Comer, but she's still a good actress. Yeah, slightly more age appropriate because I think Josephine was older than than Napoleon, not younger. But you know, and, and Jodie Comer's like in her mid twenties, and Joaquin Phoenix is uh, is in his mid to late forties. So yeah, she's like three years older than me. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did. I did note from the uh, the uh, the message we got from uh, Tony among the kind of listener messages that they are planning a reboot of the Raid films. Um, obviously, people have looked at Michael Bay's involvement and gone, "Oh shit, that sounds bad." But to, one thing about that, to be fair to Michael Bay, he was actually one of the producers on both A Quiet Place films, 
Um, so it is possible for him to be involved in the making of a film which A, turns out well, and B, isn't all bang, silly, and, and Michael Bay, which would have been a ludicrous thing to do in a, with a film called A Quiet Place, right? Huh. Um, nonetheless, I, I don't see what possible value it could add to remake or reboot or, or whatever the raid. I mean, it, it depends. I mean, if it's, people if, don't like reading films that have so like don't watching films that you have to read the subtitles. Sorry, yeah. I mean, if if it was some sort of continuation of the story, mate, mate, that's not a bad thing. The idea of like a that guy, but I mean, yeah, I think I suspect it's exactly what you described, mate. It's the raid for people who who don't want to to watch subtitles, which is which is dread. I mean, if, <laughs> it's the same yeah. thing. So it really feels redundant. A um, couple other things I saw: um, Chris Evans is doing a biopic of Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. Which should be interesting to see. He's also in that Buzz Lightyear origin story film. Oh, is that really? Is is what is he? Is he doing Buzz Young? No, Buzz Lightyear he's or no, he's playing the man that Buzz Lightyear's toy was based on. Yeah. The other thing I noticed in the news is uh, the the word Apple keeps getting mentioned in like every other news story. They seem to really getting stuck into film. They're actually the ones um, uh, behind uh, Ridley Scott's film, the Napoleon film. Uh, Brad Pitt's Formula One film that he's doing. They, they seem to be doing a lot of projects at the moment. I was reading up on it. I couldn't see for definite whether they're planning to give films a decent theatrical release, which has always been my complaint about Netflix films. Um, it, it is, it's one of those weird things where the there's money to make films these days, but, but, but it seems to be by people whose priority is streaming more than theatrical. So we'll just have to, again, we'll something I want to watch yeah. out for, yeah. Another piece of news that I thought you would appreciate is that Nick Cage gave a tremendous interview, which was reported in the news. I don't know if you saw this. I didn't know. This is fantastic. So Nick Cage um, <laughs> gave an interview where it said um, he wants to be referred to as a thespian, not an actor. <laughs> he likened his process uh, to shamanism. Um he says, at the yeah, risk of sounding like a pretentious arsehole, I like the word thespian because it means you're going into your heart. Um, okay. he, he, uh, and I just thought he told this brilliant story about his first acting experiences on a school bus when he, he and a friend were being bullied. And he said, one day, he said, I'm going to have to have attitude. And I put on some cowboy boots and a leather jacket and I started chewing gum. When they started in him, I said, I'm not Nicky Coppola, I'm Roy Richardson. And if you don't leave my friends alone, I'm going to kick your ass. So Nick Cage has uh, been the he's been the Nick Cage we know and love, you know, pretty much. Fucking hell! Someone, he's he's, he's, he's such good unbe- value, not unbeatable. He's just he's unstoppable. He is unstoppable. Like, yeah, he is. He's he's totally Nick Cage in all things he does. So, any other news stories caught your eye, or was is that pretty much it? Not really. The Poitier thing is probably the biggest. Yeah, one. Yeah, that is the um, big one. Yeah, and it's kind of that weird period where we're kind of waiting on the Oscars. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been. They're starting to give the nominations out. Screen Actors Guild Awards come out, but there's not many awards in that because it's literally just acting. So it's like actor, support an actor, actress, support an actress, and then they do some ensemble stuff and they do it for TV and film. It's not many, so you know, there's no director, you know, any of the other stuff. But yeah, it's it, it is going to be award season, and you know, we've had more of a, a normal year, a little bit. So you know, we'll see. We we obviously talk about award season in real too. Uh, including our own awards. So, uh, you know, st- stick around for that at the end of this reel. Um, but other, other than that, in terms of news, the, the next thing we, we tend to talk about is what upcoming releases are out there. Are any things caught your eye that are coming out in the next sort of month or so, mate? Oh, I don't know. Is there? There's a, there's a few things. 
it's 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 relaxed a little bit. I mean, if you remember that because of the, the delays in 2020 and 21, there was this absolute flurry of films like released when when you know cinemas even kind of half opened last year, and it was like bloody hell. There's like 50 films out. You know, Ridley Scott released two films within a month of each other. Is just an example. A little bit more normal now. Um, Sing Two is out. I don't think I even saw Sing uh. One. Um, Parallel Mothers is out, which is another Pedro Almodovar um, film. Uh, the 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 trailer looked exactly like you'd expect a you know a Pedro Almodovar film to be. So I reckon it's a you know his his, his output is pretty consistent. I, I very rarely hear people go, oh, he's off form. You know, if you like his stuff, it's a it's another one of those. So get get on it. Um, there's a film out called Firebird. Don't know much more about it than that. On the fourth <laughs> of February, uh, Moonfall comes out. Um, which I think is some sort of... I forgot what this was all about, actually. Uh, Moonfall. Yeah, it's a, it's one of these kind of disaster movies. Uh, the, the world stands on the brink of annihilation when a mysterious force knocks the moon from its orbit. And, uh, you know, it's up to some, you know, a cast of not very well-known people to go and uh, go and save humanity. Uh, Halle Berry's in it, but apart from that, it's kind of people off the telly, people off Game of Thrones and stuff like that. All right. Uh, Eyes of Tammy Faye is out. Tammy Faye was a, a, a evangelical preacher's wife who was quite interesting. She was a bit mad. She's done had millions of plastic surgery done, and obviously her husband was a massive fraudster and evangelical. And then she ended up being a bit of a campaigner for LGBT rights, um, which came out of left field. Uh, I think that's Jessica Chastain is playing her, and I think she talked about you know going through quite a lot of kind of physical. Oh, I think I saw that. Play, she, got, like, she broke a couple of bones or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, she said it was quite quite hard work actually playing her, but you know actors love talking about stuff like that, don't they? Um, Jackass Forever is out. Yet another Jackass film where it's getting to the point where you know one of these days there's there's going to be they're going to be so old that their Jackass film is them just falling over on an icy pathway and breaking their hip. Um, A Violent Man is also out in February. Um, but uh, it looks like it's a really shitty. Uh, action thing with the you know guys who normally have Danny Dyer in the lead and they can't even afford him this time. Other film releases are um, Uncharted, which I think is a video game adaptation that's got Tom Holland in. There's Death on the Nile, which is the new uh, uh, Poirot with Kenneth Branagh. Um, there's The Amazing Maurice, which I believe is a Terry Pratchett adaptation. And at the end of the month, you've got Cyrano, which we briefly touched on. Other than that, it is about the films we have watched this month, and uh, I mean there are a few new things. I mean we both we I know we both saw Spider Man No Way Home at the cinema. I mean we can talk about that first, or if there's anything else you notable you saw. Um, that's probably the last thing I saw at the cinema, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I mean I, I know you loved it. I loved it as well. Should yeah. We, should we tell awesome. tell the nice people what we thought of it? Yeah, but just without spoilers, just the summarize. I think yeah. it's probably the best Spider Man film, just because it it's just got. Not like fan service, but it's got lots of nostalgic moments. Obviously, Doctor Octopus is in it from the trailer. And it's just, it, it's so well done. It's so well polished. I couldn't find a fault with it. Um, I think it was just excellent from start to finish. Yeah. It's a solid watertight plot and it's tugs on the heartstrings, but it's also fun. It's got a lot of action. It's funny. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it and it is your thing, I'd recommend that you go and see it because it is excellent. Yeah, I echo that. I mean, again, it's like you say, you really don't want to spoil the plot of the film, but it is kind of. You know, some of these characters have turned up at kind of you know fan events and stuff, so it's publicly known that that you know some of these people are in it. They've gone a little bit Spider Verse, like Spider Man into the Spider Verse. There is a collision of universes here, so you know 
other Spider-Man universes and characters from those other universes come into this one because of a breach caused by, you know, the usual kind of uh, instigating event at the start of the film. Doctor Strange makes a cameo appearance. Um, and I think it's everything we, we hoped for. And we talked about this, didn't we, mate? We talked earlier in the year about we don't necessarily want every Marvel film from now on to be again another like kind of five year build up to another massive Thanos type yeah. you know universe threat, but we do want each film to kind of be big, strong, um, you know, right for the context of that given superhero. But you know, lots of stakes, you know, emotional and everything else. And I think we got everything we asked for. I think they really, really did a fine job of it. I think it's the be- Tom Holland's best outing. I think it just uh, you know the the first two Tom Holland films were really good and really exciting, and obviously the, there's exciting and dramatic things going on but this time it was really like you know it's like everything in his whole life was riding on this one and it really felt you know really tremendous really really good really good you know it was fun and exciting and it was kind of you know packed a punch like you said so you know that's two thumbs up from us uh on that one um did, did you see anything else kind of at the cinema or kind of new streaming releases uh Nothing at the cinema. I've just been so busy with work and trying to decorate a house and stuff like that. Yeah, so anything I've been watching, you. anything I've been watching is like finishing, doing like finishing work or finishing decorating and just watching an episode or something stupid yeah. on Netflix. I've really not watched anything apart from Spider Man No Way Home. What about yourself? Um, I saw Licorice Pizza with the new uh, Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. film. Uh, I really, really liked it. It is. Um, I think we said before that Paul Thomas Anderson, he's very much a California director. I mean, pretty much yeah. every film that he's made, apart from <laughs> Phantom Thread, is tied one way or another to uh, to California. Um, he's very, very interested in the 70s. So many of his films are, are filmed there. And it's not him being that autobiographical when he does this, because, you know, when you, you know, he's, I think he's born in like 1970. He's not that much older than me. Um, so he would have been a kid at, towards the end of the 70s, and th- this is set in 1973, so it's about him being interested in stories and the atmosphere and the style of the time and the films that got made at the time. He talked a lot about Scorsese and Robert Altman. There's a fair bit of Hal Ashby in this. Hal Ashby directed things like Harold and Maud, The Last Detail, Shampoo, things like that, and he tended to kind of have these kind of very sympathetic ensembles that the director had a great deal of feeling for and he, it was his way of telling a great kind of coming of age slightly romantic slightly comic story with a few kind of tall tales from Hollywood thrown in I thought it was really good I mean it's um, it's very Paul Thomas Anderson so if you're a massive fan of his this is right up your street if you're not a Paul Thomas Anderson fan this won't convert you I don't think it's like indulgent like a lot of Wes Anderson films where it's impenetrable to anyone else. But, you know, it is a very 70s film. It's kind of, there's most of the audience are at 1834, but I think they're watching it in almost like a retro way. Um, but it was really yeah. good and a, re- a really fun kind of supporting performance from um, Bradley Cooper as real life um, film producer John Peters, who we've talked about on the podcast before. That bloke was mental or is mental. He's still alive. and. Huh. Uh, is he's such a colourful character. That's a lot of fun watching. Um, I did watch a couple of things on on streaming as well. I watched that new thing, Red Notice, with The Rock and Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. Oh, okay, was it any good? It's all right. It passed the time. I don't regret watching it, but it, it kind of it, it is a little bit colour by numbers. It's like yeah, you have that scene and then you have that scene. Um, <clears throat> nothing special though. It's absolutely fine. I mean, they spent a lot of money. Look, they're three very engaging leads, right? It it would be hard for those three to do a film together and be unwatchable, right? But they've all done better work elsewhere than this. It was okay. It was perfectly fine, but nothing, nothing great. Um, and we went to see. I saw Don't Look Up as well. I didn't go to see it. It was on. It was on streaming. Don't Look Up is the new Adam McKay film. The guy who did Vice and oh, yeah. the Big Short. Now this is 
this isn't a like a drama documentary like his other films in which it tells you what happened to real life characters, but it's clearly a commentary by him on the current state of affairs. You know, it could be about Trump, it could be about climate change, you know, but what it is, it's a comet is going to hit the earth and he basically tells the satirical tale of how humanity would utterly fuck up doing anything about that because of all of their, the various problems in society. <laughs> it's 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 good, and I mean, I can't. Other people have liked it a lot more than I have, and I think, I think my complaint is that it's kind of the points it makes are a bit obvious, even for someone who like completely agrees with all the points they're making. Do you see what I mean? It's like, yep, totally agree, but it is, it is kind of beating you over the head a little bit. Um, bit longer than it needs to be, and I would say on the whole, the same points were made better in films like Doctor Strange, Love, and Being There. Uh, okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's worth watching, and it does make some, you know, interesting bits. I mean, at the end, people are chanting "Don't look up" and "Just look up" in rival rallies, which does put you back in mind of the whole locker up Hillary thing. And you can see what they you can see what they're trying to say, and I agree with what they're trying to say. And it's look, it's Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, various other good actors. So yeah, it, it's good, good film. Um, it's it's interesting. It it's it's gotten a bit of a negative reaction from some quarters, and I think it's because it. Uh, it portrayed the media as as part of the problem, and the media can be quite sniffy little bitches when that happens to them. So a lot of people in the media have given bad reviews as a result. Um, I thought it was quite good. Okay. So that's that's the new films we watched this month. The other thing we do in the roundup is we make some New Year's resolutions. Um, your, your New Year's resolution last year, mate, was to just try and watch more films and change that balance over from, uh, from you know, TV and, and, and other media. You um, got towards the end of last year and you had so much going on, you were finding it not that easy to do. But, you know, what would you say your resolution is for, for, for this year? Watch one film. I'm going to be very busy this year. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just um, try and finish films. I'm finding that, you know, I need to. I, I've started The Harder They Fall, didn't finish it. Started the, like, the Green Knight, got like. 90% of the way through, didn't finish it. So it's it's just one of those things, finish the films that I've started watching when I get the time. Hope It'll probably get better around about March when the house is decorated and mm-hmm. finished. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fair enough. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, everyone's everyone's behind you. We're all backing you to, to do it. <laughs> and we'll, yeah, we'll see how you get on, yeah? Yeah, I think that's mine. One uh, film. Yeah, I, I, had two, I had two New Year's resolutions last year, and I think I'm going to just make it one. I mean, I did enjoy sort of revisiting old films, and I will try and do that, but not like as a formal resolution or anything. Um, but what I really thought I'd like to do is I, 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 I really felt good about where we got to with like the, the 12-month project I did of the Year of the Carpenter. So I decided my New Year's resolution for, for this year was going to be to replicate that with something different and new. So I've, uh, I've decided that, that this year is going to be 2022 a Kubrick Odyssey. And I wanted to focus on Stanley Kubrick in a similar way to the way in which I focused on John Carpenter last last year. Um, my original plan was I was going to do, well, he's, he's directed 12 films, hasn't he? So I'll just do all of his films, one a month. And then I sort of had a proper look at his filmography and he did this really obscure early film as well. So he's actually directed 13 feature films. So I thought, well, what do I do? Do I leave one out? And I've just decided because his first two films are so short, their combined running time is two hours, 10 minutes. Um, but I decided I would do his first two films in one go in the first month. Um, and other than that, I'm just doing one Kubrick film a month till I get to the end of the year. So chronological order, his first film's first, uh, and then each each month will be his, his next film after that until we get to his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, in December. Um, so that's my... Um, that's my plan. Um, 
So the, the two early films that he, he did, I think it'd be films that people are less likely to have heard of, is 1953's Fear and Desire and 1955's Killer's Kiss. And uh, What was that first one, sorry? Fear and Desire, done in 1953. Sorry, say it one more time. Fear and Desire. Your defense is terrified. Well, Greg's on fire. Fear and Desire. Yeah, very good. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah. Fear and Desire is basically his like low budget debut, where he scraped together what money he could. I think he, I think he took out a couple of loans. You know, people, you know, friends and family gave him some money for it as well. Uh, and you could, and it and it shows. I mean, it's really really done on a shoestring. It's it's him. It's first time directing a film. He'd only been a photographer prior to that, like a photographer for magazines and things. So you can see that he's very good at framing a shot, but it's his first time, you know, directing live action and people and, and stuff like yeah. that. You can see it's Kubrick in the sense that it's very good and there's some very, very kind of strong scenes of kind of, you know, violence because it's about soldiers in some sort of unnamed allegorical war. It's a little bit it's a little bit pretentious because I think he didn't have the the money to do, you know, accurate like accurately say this is where it's happening or this is the war that I'm doing a film of. So we decided to make it a very kind of allegorical about war generally. Um, and there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, sort of slightly dreamy, um, pretentious statements. But there's, there's some good moments in it. Um, they're written by a guy called Howard Sackler who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for mm-hmm. a film called, a play called The Great White Hope, which made made, made into a film. Um but yeah, it's just it, the first film's barely over an hour long. It, it's it, the most thing interesting thing about it is that both of these films have got a guy called Frank Silvera in them, and Frank Silvera was uh, born in the Caribbean. He was uh, he was black, I guess he, he became American, so he's African American. Um, but he was actually getting parts in films that were kind of completely irrelevant to his race, which is very very unusual in the nineteen fifties. Um, and he's in it, and he's quite good. He plays a good guy or a, one of the soldiers in the first film. I mean, Kubrick doesn't do good guys, and he plays an out-and-out villain in the second film. Um, the first film is like a meditation on war and violence, and uh, and it's very much Kubrick experimenting and learning the craft of film. He pretty much disowned it afterwards because, you know, Kubrick is the sort of person who likes to do an extra 100 takes and make sure everything's right. So this film probably had him up nights going, oh, I can't believe I did that. You know, his OCD was prickling all over him at all the, <laughs> all the, all the takes that he had to accept that weren't good enough. The second film is called Killer's Kiss, and this is a sort of, more recognisable as the kind of films that were being shown as B-pictures back then in the 50s. It's a film noir about a boxer who's fallen on hard times. He's never going to be the champion. He's thinking about retiring. It's, you know, his his life is hard and, and, and he's kind of at a low level. He's uh, sort of in love or got a crush with his neighbour who is a dance hall hostess and she's being kind of um, pretty much, you know, abused and kind of harassed by her boss. Um, and they want to leave together, but the you know the gangsters who kind of control both their lives aren't, aren't going to put them to do it. And it's a traditional film noir about kind of you know the, the you know people in a violent city trying to get out from under kind of the crime ridden world that they live in. It's a bit more polished than the first one. There's more signs of Kubrick's skill with the camera. There's a terrific final kind of chase and fight sequence. Um, the main problem is budget. He didn't have the budget, so the voiceover tells you half of what happens in the film because clearly Kubrick didn't have the money to film like police interrogation scenes and stuff like that. So the narrator tells you half of what happens in the film and just leaves it out. You could tell that he wanted to do more than he was able to do with his... Um, right. But it's got a really good like handheld documentary feel, um, shot on location in, in New York, I think. Um, the money didn't match the ambition, but there's a lot of his, uh, a lot of his uh, initial promise there. Um, you know... You can tell it's Kubrick because of how well shot it is and kind of the tone of the films, but it's unusual to see a film that's kind of a bit amateurish. 
because he just didn't have the money or the actors to do what he really wanted to do. Um, but he took the money he made from these films and then started making the films that we become that he would become known for. The next film he did was The Killing, which I'm going to do next month. So this really is early days Kubrick. This is him kind of starting out, scraping together whatever money, money he could and filming something to kind of show off his talents. And, and I think Kubrick would argue that his film career started after this point with his next film, The Killing. Okay. So it, next month I'm going to be doing The Killing where we're very much in, in you know, more traditional Kubrick territory. We're entering his kind of mid to late 50s phase where he did things like The Killing, Paths of Glory, and then on to Spartacus and his like early 60s films where he started to make his name. Um, so this is like... Uh, this is like the first very early experimental phase of Kubrick. Uh, it was really interesting to watch them. I'd never seen them before. I didn't really know anything about them. And obviously, when you talk about Kubrick, you kind of you kind of think, right, we're in two thousand and one, The Shining, you know, Barry Lyndon, and this is not like any of that. So it's you know madly different, but uh, uh, an an interesting little piece of film history. Kind of like when we watched Dark Star, discussed Dark Star, you know, in the. Um, in the Carpenter series uh, last year, it's like, well, I probably won't watch either of these films again, but it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting kind of uh, completion exercise, really. That was all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the first month of 2022 at Kubrick Odyssey. The Odyssey sort of picks up the pace a little bit next month. And um, that's our roundup. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break a mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Swedish vampire film Let the Right One In to 70s police thriller The French Connection. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature. It's up to about 130 now because we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterboxd.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we're looking at a modern classic by Korean maestro Park Chan-wook who has already appeared once before in this feature. The classics I'm recommended for episode 21 is The Handmaiden. Uh, so, James, you um, you hadn't seen this before, I don't think. I don't know if you're aware of, of the background to this film or the film itself. No, no, I hadn't seen it before. Um, I didn't really know anything about it. Um, and, yeah, I was going into this completely oblivious to what it was about. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, Park Chan-wook is known for, you know, like a, a range of kind of pretty kind of dark and strange uh, Korean films. There's the Vengeance Trilogy, most notably Old Boy from that trilogy, which is where he really made his name. But he's also done... Um, things like Stoker, which was an English language film, and you know various other things. He's considered one of the leading um, Korean directors, uh, along with Bong Joon Ho. He's probably a bit more art house than Bong Joon Ho, although Bong Joon Ho has his moments. Um, but you don't often see a, a Park Chan Wook film like you know uh, The Host, which is like a like a, a sci-fi horror disaster movie. Uh, he does tend to do things kind of on his own, like strange um, and you know dark and twisted uh, stories and this is certainly in in that sort of vein uh, the, the the film came out in 2017 I think it's based on a novel called Fingersmith um, which was already adapted once for TV with Sally Hawkins from Shape of Water and the Paddington films it's um, 
Fingersmith is the, the the writer is called Sarah Waters, and she's one of the leading kind of lesbian fiction writers. Uh, she, you know, that, 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 as in she's a you know she is a lesbian, and she writes specifically lesbian fiction. Um, and you know, it's, it's an interesting film for him to do. He, he's pretty he's pretty faithful to the novel. I mean, the writer herself said he's very faithful to the novel, apart from the bit where he has transposed it from Victorian England to early 20th century um, colonial Korea. Korea at that time was a Japanese colony. So there's all, instead of the class and economic uh, structures of Britain at the time that you would get, you get the colonial and class and nationality kind of structures and rigors of, of that of that sort of uh, nexus between Korea and their, their, their essentially their landlord Japan. Um, the story is of a a group, you know, a well sort of a well established group of fraudsters. Uh, one of whom is a man who's well known like sort of seducer and con man, uh, and he he employs a, a young woman who's a you know a thief and and con artist in her own right to act as the maid to a rich rich woman uh, who's married to a a Korean who has taken Japanese citizenship and is trying to kind of develop in in Japanese society. Um, it's an it's an older older husband who's kind of exploiting her. I think he already married her aunt once and now he's married her and wants her fortune. He's got designs on her. So this guy knows uh, she's vulnerable. So he sends this woman in to be her handmaiden. And uh, there's a you know seduction, double cross twists as as that plot ensues. And you don't really know who's uh, who's really um, fooling who and who's going to come out uh, come out victorious at the end of it. Um, and obviously Park Chan-wook takes it down some pretty dark uh, dark avenues. Some of which were were in the book. To be fair, there is a lot of you know exploitation and and, and, and exploration kind of porn and, and you know the way you know commoditizing the women and all that sort of thing, and 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 how kind of gay women kind of re- re- reject that sort of thing, but kind of play the same roles out because they've got you know society hasn't given them anything else to refer to. There's a, there's a lot going on. Um, but that's right. essentially what it's about, and there's various rug pulls as you'd expect from Park Chan Wook. But uh, what did you think of this film, James? Not gonna lie, mate. I'm a lot like the reader who <laughs> said that turned it on, turned off after 50 minutes. wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't find it that gripping. I didn't turn it off after 50 minutes. I gave it about 45, and was just like, "What the fuck am I watching?" Interesting. I hate. I think people just hide behind the name psychological thriller now to make absolutely bonkers films, and I felt like that's what this film was. Basically, it was a bit bonkers, and that's what the the term psychological thriller means nowadays. Yeah, I mean, if 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 a film that's bonkers isn't for you, then you know, then this isn't for you. Um, so that it isn't for me. I just if it's bonkers, it's got to have some sort of semblance of structure to it, and this didn't have any structure. It was just let's be mental. Well, for me, it didn't. It was just mental, in my opinion. It was just I couldn't follow it. Did you did you get as far as part two? Did you get to the point where it says part two and they start telling the story from the other angle? No. no so you kind of abandoned shit, you know. Yeah, I think that's what I was yeah. So it's so I mean for the for the benefit of the audience, essentially what you have is that the handmaiden uh, is a maid who finds herself physically attracted to her um uh to the woman that she's been sent to to you know to be the maid for while actually being part of the con trick. The con trick is to persuade her. This is the thing. So I don't just clarify. She's not married to the the rich guy in the house. She's the niece of the of of the dead wife. She hanged herself. She's the niece of the dead of the dead wife, 
Um, the husband wants to marry her so he can, you know, the, the man of the house wants to marry her so he can have her fortune. The Count realises he's got to sneak in, you know, seduce her, elope with her so that he can marry her and then get her fortune. And he's planning to um, have her, that the maid kind of sort of help persuade her be seduced by by him, the con man. And then he's going to have her kind of declared insane, put her in, a, in, a, in an asylum and then take, you know, take her, her money which is considerable, her fortune is considerable. The maid finds herself attracted to them, so there's a fair amount of explicit kind of content of the of the affair that she she uh, embarks on with the woman. Um, and then there's a massive rug pull, and you're like, oh shit, who's doing, who's doing what to whom? And then they kind of play back the original story from another angle and show you there's a whole lot of other things going on as well. And it also delves into some really kind of sick stuff that the um, the man of the house was into. He's into he's you know essentially using these women for you know to to play out kind of erotic fantasies for a series of depraved men. There's a lot of commentary on Japanese colonialism, the difference between Japanese culture and Korean culture. I think obviously a Korean film that that tells the story of when Japan controlled Korea and it was encouraged to be more like the Japanese and the Koreans and to kind of look down on your own culture. There's obviously going to be, an, you know, when a, a, a Korean filmmaker is going to tell that story differently to a Japanese filmmaker, obviously. Um, and there's a second rug pull, which I don't want to kind of, you know, spoil the plot for people. We find out there's also even more going on than you thought. Um, it's told it's told in a very kind of stately, controlled way. There's It's very classically done. There's a lot of costume drama to it. But as James says, it's weird now, it's bonkers, I, yeah. I really liked it i thought this was a tremendous film but it is very weird and it doesn't seem to make sense and you have to look you know look, your time is valuable at the moment mate and if it's not for you it's not for you i think yeah. what, the, the, this this repays in my opinion a viewing where you are able to kind of get through it if you look it's, it's not your fault if you can't get through it, you can't get through it if you know you, you might not have felt any better about it if you'd sat through the whole bloody thing but i think when, when you get the first kind of switch and things fall into place and things that look strange and didn't make sense in the first hour suddenly go, oh shit, that's what she was doing or that's what he was doing. And then and then it starts to piece it together. And, and it is, I found it really gripping, um, but it's very weird. I think a lot of it is probably a little bit alien to your traditional kind of Western kind of film audience. Um, I'm, I'm definitely glad I watched it. I don't think it's quite as good as Old Boy. I will say that. A lot of people have said this is his masterpiece. I still think Old Boy is his best film. That's just got this sheer kind of force of will to it. Um, but this was a very, very cleverly done film. And, I, and it was like, uh, I'm a sucker for a con artist film. If you like con man films like Nine Queens or Matchstick Men or The Sting or anything like that, this is Park Chang-wook's sort of super weird uh, meditation on that. But uh, it is weird. It's almost like he's almost, he's almost the Korean David Lynch when he makes this film. He's really kind of out there. Um, but I think that the things that he's saying and the things that he's commenting on are very real. He just does it in a really kind of out there way. Um, but yeah, this is, um, you know, when we, when we, when we watch the French connection, we, we talk about that film with a fair degree of confidence that most people could sit down and watch that and enjoy it. Cause it's a police thriller and, and that's kind of a, a more familiar kind of content. This is very strange, perhaps not for everyone, but I, I'm glad I watched it. But obviously I, I recognize your point of view, mate, there's, there's going to be a point where you're going to say, oh, this is too, this is too weird yeah, for me. Nice. And you won't be the only person who said it was too weird for you. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's our classic for this month. Park Chan walks to Handmaiden and uh, we'll be back with something, something else from our watch list uh, next month.
And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're discussing a film that was well received on its release, but hasn't quite got the true classic status it deserves, uh, and we think it deserves to be more widely seen. The hidden gem for episode 21 is Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. So, uh, you, you'd seen this before, mate. You'd seen this before we did this feature, yeah? Yeah, I think I saw it a while ago. I want to say I saw it when I was about 13. Okay, so it's a while since so you've seen it. A while it. since, about 12 years ago since I yeah. saw it. And it's even um, longer since I saw it. I mean, this was a real staple of the 90s. You know, watched it, you know, pretty much as soon as it came out. Watched it, you know, you know, rented it a couple of times. It was on TV a couple of times. You know, it was a reasonable box office success. I think it made $40 million on a $25 million budget in the US. You know, box office figures for the rest of the world are, you know, hard to find. But it was reasonably, it was reasonably well received at the time. Well, actually, it was very well received at the time. So it was, those who saw it liked it, but not everybody saw it. Yeah. And it's kind of just drifted out of the conversation a little bit. It's kind of, you know, when Robin Williams sadly passed, it was one of the films that they talked about. As, oh, he's, a, he's a terrific actor and he's a great stuff he did. But I think there was, you know, understandably, a lot more focus on things like Good Morning Vietnam and, uh, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire and the kind of films that he's, you know, performances he's most well known for. Whereas I think this deserved to be seen much more prominently. And similarly, Jeff Bridges, he's, you know, he's, he's known for doing things like, you know, The Dude and Big Lebowski and True Grit and, and various things like that. And I, I think this is really up there with one of his best performances. And it's a slightly atypical performance for him as well, which makes it, you know, worth watching for that as well. Um, yeah, so I, I thought we'd just, just sort of just get into it. Um, the Fisher King is originally a, one of the King Arthur legends. The Fisher King was one of the characters in the story who was tasked with um, finding and, and, and guarding the Holy Grail uh, through a, a series of kind of, uh, you know, the story gets told a few different ways through a series of either disasters or his own kind of pride. He ends up wounded and incapacitated and is unable to kind of proceed or do anything because he's just too wounded to carry on. And uh, through the course of making peace with himself and finding the Grail, his his wounds were miraculously healed. And it's a fascinating, it's a story that's fascinated a number of people. Um, it's not the first time Terry Gilliam had made a film about the Holy Grail. Um, he obviously was one of the co-directors and you know actors in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was a you know a comedic look at Monty Python, sorry, a comedic look at King Arthur's uh, you know quest. Um, interestingly, that film only really looks at the uh, the the medieval time with King Arthur, although it has a few kind of uh, comically played kind of modern-day interludes as if a, a, a historian, a modern-day historian is talking about the, the incidents as well. Uh, and the police break up a fight, which is, you know, just Monty Python being surreal. Originally, th that film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, was going to have a, a, a parallel plot line of people in the modern day searching for the Holy Grail. And what would searching for the Holy Grail look like or be about or really mean in the modern day so it's interesting that he would later find himself directing a film about people searching for the holy grail in the present day which is the background to this film funnily enough it wasn't his idea it's one of those funny coincidences uh, a writer called richard lagravanese wrote a script on spec and it circulated in hollywood for a while and people were like i really like this but it's a bit too weird and out there i don't know what to do with this and terry gilliam found it he'd been making sort of bigger budget sort of wilder weirder films like brazil and baron munchausen He'd, he'd been battered by his experiences. We're looking around for something a little bit more intimate that he could feel a little bit he could, he could do without too much studio interference. 
uh, and found this script and went, this is perfect. This is perfect for me. It's weird. It's strange. It's got the Holy Grail in it. It's like, you know, this is perfect for me. Cracked on and did it. And um, it concerns a, a radio DJ who kind of, there's not as many of those nowadays as there are, but there are similar kind of people in the media out there now that, you know, they might be doing podcasts or or, or stuff like that. And he's very brash and he's kind of always, you know, saying controversial things. And one day, one of his controversial kind of outbursts on his show causes someone to go on a shooting spree and ends up, you know, ruining his career and traumatized and drinking heavily and, you know, retreating into himself. He finds himself, you know, living in a reduced circumstances with, with a woman who owns a video store. Remember those in the early 90s. He comes upon a strange tramp. That's Jeff Bridges' character. He comes across kind of a strange tramp. He's about to be beaten up by, you know, he's kind of contemplating suicide. He's about to be beaten up by a bunch of kind of assholes who, who prey on on the homeless uh, and a strange homeless guy uh, who, who acts like he's a, a knight of the round table rescues him and and it's Robin Williams in full kind of you know manic crazy funny mode and he finds out that this is actually a guy who was who lost his wife in the mass shooting that ended Jeff Bridges' career so they've both had their lives ruined by the same incident and Jeff Bridges wants to kind of make recompense for what happened and obviously Ron Williams' character is trying to deal with a lot of trauma and, and it just goes from there. And Terry Gilliam tells it as this sort of slightly magical, realist fable of strange things going on. I mean, I love this film. And I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's, you know, it's not your era, mate, but I, I wonder if you liked it as much as I did. No, I enjoyed it. It was, um, it was good. I, um, I, me- I remember the first time I saw it, I really enjoyed it. I didn't fully understand the subject matter. So I was a lot younger then. And then watching it again, you do kind of understand the performances a little bit more. Yeah. They, they make more sense because you've kind of got a, you got a more grown up perspective of it now, um, yeah. but no, it is an excellent film. Uh, Robin Williams at his best, Jeff Bridges. I wouldn't say at his best, but in the film, doing a good job. But it, it, this film for me is all about Robin Williams. He's um, he's just excellent, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I love Robin Williams in this. I mean, to talk about Jeff Bridges for a second, I am a big fan of this performance of his because I think a lot of sort of earlier Jeff Bridges performances, it's got him as kind of he's a young, sort of handsome leading man type, although he has a little slightly. You know, he's slightly more offbeat than 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 average. Everything from the Last Picture Show through Starman to the Fabulous Baker Boys, and his later films are all kind of you know aging hippie like The Dude or like grizzled veterans like like True Grit and Crazy Heart, which is what he won his Oscar yeah. for. And this is a really different performance from this. And although it is all about Robin Williams, I really enjoyed his performance in this because he plays he plays someone who's really embittered and really in pain. And the thing is, he's trying to get his old life back, but his old life was shit. He wasn't a nice person in his old life. And he's you see him kind of dealing with different people, you know, like Robin Williams is kind of mad kind of tramp and the 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 the, the gay um, homeless guy who is, I can't remember, who's uh, played by Michael uh, Jeter, who's always singing sh- uh, songs from, you know, show tunes from Gypsy and, and various kind of other odd characters that he encounters. And you see him become acting like a more compassionate person than he ever was at the start of the film, but he's trying to get back to the arsehole that he used to be. And that conflict in Jeff Bridges, I thought he did a really nice job of. Um, but yeah, Robin Williams, the thing with Robin Williams is that he's like, you know, he, he, he did a couple of performances later in his career where you think, God, he should have done more of that, which was one hour photo and insomnia where he plays like a fucking psycho. And you think, mm. fucking hell, look at that. And he's done various other sort of performances, you know, that, that he's, he's known for. But there was one thing that he was always trying to do where there's an element of that manic comic persona that he's he's portraying is masking a lot of pain and, and, and is someone who's trying to he's trying to reach out 
and there's he, he wants you know he wants love he wants understanding he, he he wants to see what's beautiful in the world even though he's in a lot of pain and he expresses that in that kind of manic robin williams way and there have been performances where that kind of really fell over into sentimentality there have been performances where it worked really well like dead poet society but especially um you know good morning vietnam but he wasn't really doing his sentimental side in good morning vietnam but this is the performance i think where robin williams absolutely fucking nailed everything he was trying to do in one performance this is where you just go this is it this is perfect you can see that the trauma that he's dealing with the you know the the mad visions that he has because he's still so haunted by his past the person that he's trying to be the way he expresses himself by getting everyone you know to sing i love new york and junior all that stuff it just absolutely distills into it really is in my opinion the the ultimate robin williams performance where everything just everything just sits right you know yeah and I've seen a few films where Robin Williams tried this sort of thing and it didn't sit right. And it might be down to the writing and the direction. I don't know, because Robin Williams turns up on set and does his thing. And this is this is the script and the director to really make what Robin Williams is trying to do fucking, fucking tick and work. And it's just, it's just spot on. Mm, no, I agree. I mean, it's interesting because the... Robin, uh, Terry Gilliam's sort of... What people think of as Terry Gilliam's most kind of... Typical films are the really wild and crazy, completely off-the-wall ones. The more recent examples of that would have been kind of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, And uh, he recently did the, you know, uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is, uh, that's going to be a long story in its own right on this podcast in the future. Um, But um, the... uh, the, the films he kind of made his name with were Time Bandits, you know, after he left the Pythons, were Time Bandits, uh, Brazil, and Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which sort of act as a bit of a trilogy, where he's creating these totally wild, different worlds, and they're big budget, and they're full of fantasy, and they're full of special effects, and there's almost this perception that some of the stuff he did in the 90s, like The Fisher King and Twelve Monkeys, was him kind of... I mean, some people said it was a bit selling out, he went a bit mainstream, and he's kind of not, you know, not, they're not as personal films. I'm not sure that's true because Terry Gilliam on the one hand was trying to get away from making those kind of films and and, and I think he was a bit discouraged after those films had a hard time unjustifiably because I think he did really well with with you know films that you know weren't supported as well by the studio but with with the Fisher King it's kind of I think it really works to have those Terry Gilliam touches grounded in a real place you know present day New York and and real things that are happening in New York like the people and loneliness and dealing with like you know a hard life and, and, and all of those things. And I think it's amazing to see Terry Gilliam's, he does, he, he films at funny angles, he uses funny lenses to kind of make it look all weird. And I think it's really great to see Terry Gilliam apply all that to a different kind of story. I think this is right up there. I think what you might say is this isn't Terry Gilliam becoming more mainstream. This is the mainstream becoming more Terry Gilliam. And, and I'm all for that. Um, it's... It, and it, it it kind of it kind of expresses the idea of the Holy Grail really well and the, and the dealing with trauma really well. So I think it's a uh, I think it's a worthy addition to Terry Gilliam's uh, you know filmography. It's not you know again it's it's not in the same vein as his bigger name films like Brazil, but uh, it's definitely worth watching. And it's funny because I've, I've I've yet to meet someone who saw it and didn't like it. But I think more people you know I don't think enough people have seen it in my humble opinion. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films the top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. 
This month we look at uh, a film director who wasn't known for making this kind of film, but who was trying to tell a uh, large-scale and harrowing story of an incident from World War II that has been immortalised in other films. The one that got away from episode 21 is Barry Levinson's The Captain and the Shark. So how much did you know about this before we uh, set it up for the feature, mate? Nothing at all. And then I read into it, and it's basically the story that um, Quinn, or is it Quint? Yeah. From Jaws um, tells, you know, kind of towards the end of the film. That's right, um, yeah. When, when they're on the boat together, they're asking about their tattoos. Quint's got one that's been, you know, probably not lasered off because I don't think that's how they did it in the 70s, but he's had a tattoo. faded or something. It's he's, a bit he's, scraped off. And he's, it's, he's had a tattoo removed. And when, they, when he says what it is, he says it's USS Indianapolis. And the other two react in complete shock and they say, you were on the USS Indianapolis? I think in the 70s, I think most Americans had heard of that story. So it's the story of how an American ship, the USS Indianapolis, was used to deliver uh, vital parts for the atomic bomb across the Pacific uh, to the air base where, where the, uh, the atomic bomb was, was going to be uh, you know, delivered from. Um, having delivered those parts, the, the Enola Gay flew over Japan and dropped the bomb in Hiroshima, and the rest is history. But on the way back from its, its mission to deliver those parts, Indianapolis was torpedoed by Japanese ships. Uh, and through a range of failures, um, no one seemed to know about it sinking for several days. So for five days, the survivors of the sinking of the ship were stuck in the water, uh, heavily shark-infested waters, uh, and through a combination of uh, shark attacks, obviously, which is why it was of interest to the uh, uh, to the makers of Jaws, but also, you know, delirium, dehydration, you know, exposure... Um, 1,100 uh, men went into the sea, about 800 survived sinking uh, and were floating in the water for five days and just over 300 were picked up. So 800 out of the 1,100 strong crew died as a result of this incident. And uh, not only was it like that famous speech in Jaws, it's, it's been an interesting, uh, it's been a, a fascinating subject for, for other people in the past who wanted to make films of it. There's been TV movies made of it. Uh, and this is uh, the story of um, Barry Levinson's attempt to do it. Barry Levinson started out as a writer. He did some stuff with Mel Brooks um, and then became a film director in his own right. He's known for things like Rain Man, which is quite famous, uh, The Natural, Bugsy. He's, done, he's got quite an interesting and varied filmography. Not many films of this kind of scale, I would say. He did a big, big budget action film called Sphere, which wasn't very good. I don't think anyone blames him for that too much. He just took a studio job. But other than that, he's known for kind of you know, intimate portraits of the town he grew up, Baltimore, in films like Diner. Um, you know, more, you know, character-based pieces. But you know, he was a, he was a pretty budget successful director at this time, and he wanted to have a crack at this, and he wanted to tell the story of it based on a particular book about the incident called In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. Um, it was originally announced as in development two thousand and one. Um, when you read up on it, did you what did you find out about the production, Mike? I know that Mel Gibson was meant to be in it. Yeah, he, he was actually offered two two versions of this story. There, were, there was one of those ones where there were, there were two people trying to make the, this film at the same time. They both wanted Mel Gibson, and uh, he chose this story. Um, it was... Um, I think a couple of things happened in, in this case. Uh, one of the things that kind of think made the story interesting is that the captain of the, the Indianapolis, Charles McVeigh, was made the scapegoat for the whole incident. He was court-martialed, in fact, saying he failed to protect his ship's fishing from attack, he should have zigzagged to escape the submarines, uh, and why didn't he give a decent signal to get uh, um, uh, to get rescued? Uh, it turns out that th he actually sent three distress signals which were all ignored, 
Uh, and, you know, he had no chance against the submarine because the submarine had him banged to rights. Um, but despite that, his career was ruined. Uh, and he he eventually committed suicide, not helped by the guilty felt of this incident and that hate mail he received over the years. In the late 90s, information emerged exonerating him. And by about the year 2000, he was actually, part, you know, cleared of all wrongdoing. Too late for him. But I think that's what, like, reignited interest in the case. Um, why didn't that happen? I think partly it's too grim. I mean, the, the, the details of this story are pretty tough. I mean, I'm not sure Hollywood wants to spend blockbuster money on a film that's, um, you know, where lots and lots of men die in horrific circumstances in the water, you know, surrounded by sharks and, and in which the US Navy's, you know, basically fucked up. I don't know what you think, mate, but I, I think in the end, the hardest thing would have been selling people on the idea of making a movie about this at all. Um. Yeah, uh, a lot of American films tend to be about like their military successes, so they wouldn't want to show a film where basically a boat gets sank. sunk. Yeah, sank. I mean, yeah. In see the late seventies, early eighties, there was a little bit more desire to make films about you know America's kind of less successful times in the war. Um, this is um, you know especially after Vietnam, you know, with things like Platoon Apocalypse now, but that time's passed, and I think in the year two thousand two thousand and one. We're in a different atmosphere in America, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind watching. I think it's a really good idea for a film. So I don't know why there was a reluctance to make it because people wouldn't go and see it because it's a it doesn't matter if you're American or a patriot. It's just that it's a it's obviously a sad story. But I think I, th that... I think it's partly the money because, like, interestingly, one of the things that did get made is they did make a film of this. So they did a, they did a Nick Cage film about this. All oh, right. Okay. Um, and let me tell you about that film, because that gives you an example of what might have happened if they tried to do it with less money. It was <laughs> called U.S. Indianapolis Men of Courage. Uh, and to be fair to Nick Cage, he took this seriously. He didn't do one of his bonkers performances in this. Um, you know, he was trying to, t to take the whole story seriously. Um, the film, that film was done, I mean, quite a lot, a long time later. I mean, we're talking about 20, 2016 when that was made. Um, it didn't have a director of the calibre of Barry Levinson in it, or you know, you know, I mean, some reasonable guys in the cast like Tom Sizemore, James Remar, Thomas Jane, people you'd recognise. But um, they didn't have enough money for the sort of special effects, so they said the sinking of the ship looks pretty shit. The shark attack footage looks like something from Sharknado, and the whole thing doesn't, you know, just isn't done with the relevant level of gravity. So it's probably an element of it's worth making a movie about, but. I don't think Hollywood's prepared to make a film that's going to lose money about it. Do you know what I mean? Give them $100 million so that you can have a massive ship sinking and that the logistics of filming on water are quite hard. And I think it's a case of, it's not too grim a story it's to tell completely, but you're talking about a more low-budget indie film, and I think that's hard to do. I, mean, I don't know. I think it's it's the how you sell it. Like If I was making the trailer for that film, I'd film the film with the budget that I'd need to film it, and then for the trailer, I'd just have the story being told by Quint from Jaws, but with the actors in that film, yeah. just kind of that kind of horror, like that horrifying speech just playing over the top as yeah. you of the trailer. And then that sells it for me. That yeah. sells the film. So I don't know why people are so reluctant to yeah. put money towards it. It, it, so. it also might've been the, you know, the, the narratively, I think if you have a long film where like say 40 minutes of it is just men in the water kind of, you know, suffering, I think that's hard. So I think in terms of narrative structure, you might perhaps have wanted to frame it with the court martial. Yeah. Or maybe with, you know, with a combination of that and his kind of later exoneration. Because then at least you could you could flip back to scenes of their suffering in the water and the things that were happening. 
Do you know yeah. what I mean? Instead of just saying right now for 40 minutes, this is going to be pretty tough. Watch everyone strap yourselves in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the description of what happened, if you if you if you listen to kind of Robert Shaw's speech in Jaws, it sounds horrific. It's gross. Yeah, it's, it's very very grim. I think part of the problem as well was that by the time they actually came to start making this film, um, it wasn't the best time for Barry Levinson's career. I mean, if you look at him in uh, in in the eighties, he does uh, he does Diner, which is very well. He's nominated for an Academy Award. He does a film called The Natural with Robert Redford, which is a hit. He does. Uh, he does a, a, a Disney film for uh, a live action Disney film for you know with Spielberg as a producer. Good Morning Vietnam was directed by him. Massive hit. So his stock's really high back then. He does Rain Man and wins Best Director. You know, and then l- later he did a film called Bugsy with, with Warren Beatty in the lead. So beginning of the nineties, Barry Levinson is conquering all right, uh, and yeah. he has a couple of big films in the nineties. But by the time you're getting down to two thousand, two thousand and one, his films have stopped being as big hits as they used to be. And it's it's just one of those things. I think Barry Levinson's a really talented guy. He's also a terrific screenwriter. But you know, sometimes people's career lose momentum. It's like sportsmen. Sometimes their careers just hit, hit a bit of a a slump. And I right. think he was going through a bit of a career slump. And I think Barry Levinson wasn't big enough to didn't quite have the juice to get the film made. Do you know what I mean? It's if Scorsese goes in and says, "I've got DiCaprio," maybe he gets this film made. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't think Barry Levinson quite had the uh, um, the pull exactly to, to get this done at the time. Yeah, I mean the project's there in the films. I don't think I don't think this film will get made in the era of COVID and Netflix, where it's really hard to film productions. Yeah, where not many people are going to the cinema. And yeah, saying that Spider-Man: No Way Home just made something ridiculous. Yeah, it's like one of the top ten grossing films of all time, and that yeah. was during during COVID. So you never know. But it, it de- you know it depends if if you've got a star attached these days. It really, it really does. Yeah. Star um, director and actor. So yeah, hopefully. Definitely. They have actually done a documentary about this um, in the past kind of three or four years. It's called U.S.'s Indianapolis, The Legacy. And it's a documentary about this um, uh, this incident. Uh, and it is the most highly rated version of this. It was 2015 it was made. And um, uh, it's a very highly rated documentary. I haven't seen it myself. But I think if you were just you know to go by that, by what... But by fan response, the other film attempts to make films of this. There was a TV movie with Stacey Keach in the nineties, and there was the, the Nick Cage version. This version of the film that tells the story and you know as a documentary comes across best uh, in terms of audience reaction. And maybe this is your to your point. We've talked about this before, mate, about true life films. Maybe this film is better as a documentary than as a drama. Maybe, yeah. And then you don't really need to tell it because everyone sort of knows the story. That's yeah, and and, opinion, and, the, the, and there's, there's there's some complex logistics to this. I mean, when 800 men go into the sea on lifeboats, they're not all in one place. There's different groups, and they're trying to stay in touch with each other, and they're signaling to each other, but they're spread out across a large bit of sea. So in a drama, you might say, well, do we focus on one group? Yeah. Or how do we cut between the different groups? And, you know, in a documentary, you just don't have the same problem. You can just tell all their stories because the format's yeah. more suited to it. And and then you can kind of get into the, um, you know, why was he court-martialed? Why was he the scapegoat? I mean, it's an interesting footnote to this is that, you know, historians and analysts were coming out in the late 90s and kind of making some making a difference to, to the, the, the reputation of the captain um, at the end of this as well. But there's a really interesting anecdote to this as well is there was a high school history student in America, a teenager, 
was really interested in, in, in the story, you know, and I think in naval history generally, and decided to do a paper on USS Indianapolis for school. And was the kind of diligent kid who really, really got stuck into it, a real history buff who really got into it and started digging into information about it. And this student, when when they presented their paper, when they dug up their, their information, they actually came out and said, I've actually read up on this. And I think it was completely unfair that the, um, uh, that the captain was a scapegoat for this. And he was so motivated by what he found out that he wrote to his local congress you know representative or senator or someone anyway who got in touch with the navy and, and or, you know and, and survivors of, of the crash and that kid is credited with some of the momentum that to hold congressional hearings and formally exonerate the captain i thought that was an interesting footnote to the whole story and that, that's told in the documentary as well yeah so i don't think this film actually needs to be made if they've already had a documentary made about yeah, it so yeah but uh, yeah, it's an interesting because Barry Levinson's a really interesting director, and this would have been his biggest film ever if he'd done it. I mean, he'd, he'd done big budget stuff, but nothing on this sheer scale. But uh, yeah, this is one. Uh, you know, this is uh, definitely. You know, um, we're probably not going to see this now. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, or a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of an original that they should have left well alone. This month we're looking at another of the depressingly common examples of Steve Martin debasing both his talent and the original idea. The remake Hate Watch for episode 21 is the 1996 big screen adaptation of Sergeant Bilko. So, James, I'm not sure if you're aware of the original TV show Sergeant Bilko. It was something from the 50s, wasn't it? It was basically, yeah. was it similar to kind of like M.A.S.H.? Sort of. Your, your granddad's a big fan of this show and it used to be repeated a lot on TV, so I saw quite a few episodes of it. And it's kind of... It's kind of part of part of that first kind of wave of American sitcoms that came along with things like The Honeymooners and Car Fifty Four, and, and and various stuff like that. And then he followed up with things like I Love Lucy and various stuff. So it's the first sort of big sort of almost golden age of of Hollywood t- sort of, you know TV comedy. Um, what happened was they tended to get a lot of people who'd been quite successful on the stage and in stand up. And they put them in comedies and, and just stick them in front of a studio audience. That's where that whole convention of film before a live studio audience came about. Because you got a bunch of people who really knew how to work a, work a crowd. And, you know, with the censorship restrictions on American TV, you couldn't exactly have many kind of rude jokes on there. So you needed performance who could really, really fucking crack a joke and get an audience to laugh. And Sergeant Bilko was about a... It's kind of similar to MASH in a sense in that it's about a, an army... Uh, an army, a Fort Baxter. It's like an army outpost in, in the, just in, in middle America, essentially in peacetime. So there's not a lot going on. And Bilko is the master sergeant of a of a of a motor pool, and he's a massive con man. And each episode, he's got some sort of scheme on, and he's always outwitting. You know, someone's always you know trying to shut him down, and he's always outwitting them. And there's always various kind of things to do. And um, it's 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 it relies upon real quick fire comedy and very established character actors and. Um, 
And by the time you're on the kind of second or third series of this, the audience is kind of halfway of the joke before anyone says anything. Do you know what I mean? Because right. they start setting something up and people go, oh, I know what Bilko's going to do with this sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Or one of the, one of the main characters like Doberman or one of his platoon is sort of put in a situation and these familiar characters kind of almost generate a comedy themselves. Um, I'm not sure why they even thought to do a remake of this. It's a weird thing to suddenly want to do in the mid-1990s, like 40 years later. It's very strange. I mean, the, the era of like your kind of anarchic kind of uh, army comedy is sort of gone. I mean, they tried a couple of things in the 90s, like Renaissance Man with um, uh, Danny DeVito and Major Payne with one of the Wayans brothers. But it's a, bit of, it's a bit of an odd one. I'm not sure why they chose to do this at all. But yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. It was, I, I didn't get it because I don't think I watched the, the series. But even then, I don't find Steve Martin very funny. I think he's grossly overrated. I don't think he's a funny man at all. I don't, I don't think he's got any comedic timing. But maybe that's just because I've seen all of his shit films. But I, <laughs> I, I, I find him boring. I have actually decided we should maybe put a, a good Steve Martin film on our list for some time in the future to try and restore his reputation. He's fucking shy. He's just, he's just boring. No, I learned one from his Pink Panther, Daddy Daycare One, Daddy Daycare Two. Uh, Sergeant Bilko, um, just these god awful films. He's just not very good. That's well. That's my impression. I know, I know. This is the thing: is that you know, and, and his earlier stuff might just be the wrong era of comedy for you. Things like The Jerk, The Man with Two Brains, All of Me, L.A. Story, Roxanne. Roxanne's a terrific film. Um, and ma- maybe he's just one of those people. I mean, Eddie Murphy's career didn't really survive that well into the nineties, and Eddie Murphy's one of those talented comedians ever to get in front of a camera. So. Maybe it's just one of those things. But the thing with Steve Martin is that it really is a case for me as a fan of his that he started doing films that are just massively fucking beneath him. And I think if you if you had watched the original show, it would only make the effect worse. Because okay. the thing is, they've basically got the, whole, they got the whole idea wrong in the first place. Steve Martin doesn't look right. He hasn't got the right kind of demeanor for, for, the, for the character. The weird thing is, right, that they actually had the right person or someone who could have done a good job as Sergeant Bilko in the film, Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd is a much more appropriate person to play the original Bilko character. Um, the other pro- the problem is, for some reason, despite the quality of the people that got doing it, and, and, and believe it or not, this is the director who did um, uh, My Cousin Vinny. Okay. So it's like the person who's directing it has done good films. The people that are in the film have made good films. And it just, the whole thing just sits there and it dies. And it's, the, the idea is, is that there's this whole bit where the, the, like one of the biggest comedy set pieces is one where they don't know how to um, go on parade and kind of present arms and do all of those things. And Steve Martin doesn't even know the, 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 the commands. And it's like, no, the whole point is that he's been in the army for like 10 or 15 years and he knows all the scams. Do you know what I mean? You can't be that character unless you actually know your way around the army. So they just they, they got really lazy and went, oh, well, let's imagine they don't know how to do any of the normal army stuff. And the other thing is they desperately, desperately like telegraph every joke. Every joke is explained to you three times before it happens. It's one of those, here comes the joke, here comes the joke. That was a joke. What did you think of the joke? And he'd say, oh, my God, I want to die. I laughed. I laughed once. There was one, there was one joke that I found funny which was in the middle of it all, there, uh, Steve Martin's trying to give an explanation and Dan Aykroyd goes, what's that over there? And Steve Martin goes, it's, bull- it's horseshit, sir. And then he carries on talking. And Tim goes, what's it doing there? And Steve Martin just says, like, without a pause, oh, it's keeping the flies off the food. And I went, oh, that was quite good. That was quite well-timed. The rest of it, 
I mean, and they even ruined that joke because after that joke, they all stopped and everyone looks up and they see that there's a horse hanging over them in the room because they're trying to hide a horse. And I just think, oh my God, everything is just, it's really done for the fucking lowest common denominator. It's one of those films that really assumes that everyone watching it is going to be a moron and won't understand anything that's going on. Right, one of those spells everything out for you kind of films. Yeah. And the thing is, they if you're going to do this in a kind of, um, in a more modern comedy than the original 50s, it is this basically smart-ass character who's basically pulling a wool over the authorities' eyes, which is um, Bill Murray in Stripes, which is an army comedy, as uh, Steve Gutenberg in Police Academy, which is a bit of a cheesy film, but he, he pulls it off. And uh, and although it's, uh, it's TV, not film, Rowan Atkinson in Blackadder Goes Forth as the as the captain of, of the of the you know in the army who's always trying to avoid getting involved in any combat, and he's and he does it because he's smart and he outwits everyone, and this is just fucking dumb. It's painfully painfully unfunny. It's just it's just desperate. It's just an exercise in something that shouldn't have got made, and then what they did make was badly done. And it's God, I mean, the people in it. Phil Hartman plays the main um, the main bad guy, and he's a funny funny man. I mean, he's one of those people who. Um, there is a thing where people who are really funny on Saturday Night Live end up not being as funny in, in, in their film career sometimes. But Phil Hartman used to do these really funny um, supporting um, performances. He's in Small Soldiers, which we watched last month, and he's very funny. And he does these lovely cameo stuff before he died in The Simpsons. And he's wasted. Dan Aykroyd's wasted. Uh, one of the, the young, kind of sincere uh, new recruit is played by one of the guys from Galaxy Quest. So they've taken a cast of people who can do comedy and then it's just ruined everything and all of them. It just, it was really quite depressing. So there's not really any redeeming features for Sergeant Bilko. It is just a bit of a, a kicking for, for, for Steve Martin again. Um, if you if you like a modern day kind of military style comedy, then I would suggest you, you watch uh, Bill Murray in Stripes. I do recommend you watch the original TV show. It's quite funny. Uh, it's, it's of its time, but it is, it's beautifully timed comedy of some really top kind of stage performers. But otherwise, steer clear of this, people. This was bad. Steve Martin is just shit. <laughs> We're going to have to find a way to rehabilitate Steve Martin's relationship with you by showing you some of his early films. But <laughs> I feel like I might be like uh, setting setting that up to fail anyway, because perhaps it's just not. Uh, perhaps it's just uh, out of its time. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think the jerk was a work of genius. I think everything he did up to L.A. Story was really good, and then he do- he did a couple of more interesting films in the nineties, like Leap of Faith and Simple Twist of Fate, where he's trying to do something different. And then he just gave up, and he does Endless Father of the Bride sequels. He did Pink Panther. Everything he did from about the mid-90s onwards has been absolute shite. It's a real shame. It's a real shame. I'm, I am I hate to give Steve Martin this much of a kick in, but he really, it really is disappointing when someone I think is very talented does nothing but crap. I mean, I, we could do the next two, you know, the next year just on shit Steve Martin remakes, you know, one a month. It's really sad. Yeah, but that would probably make us suicidal. So let's <laughs> yeah, so let's not do that. <laughs> I'm going to try and mix it up a little bit on future remake hate watch. Try and do something a little bit more, a little bit different. Um, but yeah, that's our remake hate watch for this month. I don't think we're re- recommending this one. We often don't, but we're really not recommending this one. <laughs> We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we will be taking on the big conversation, which this month brings you the first annual Double Reel Awards, 
a look ahead to the Oscars and other big award ceremonies. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. The podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.